0: Hello, welcome to How to Write a Play. I'm Alex. I work for the Old Fire Station Arts Centre in Oxford, and we're currently running a playwriting course with Triple Olivier, Woodwin and Mike Bartlett. Stay tuned for Mike's advice, writing tips, writing exercises and answers to questions from listeners, plus our thoughts on the theatre world in 2023. Today we're talking about self-censorship in the arts. Mike, what are we covering in the course this week?
1: Editing. And notes and planning, but really, like what informs your choices when you come to edit your play? And is editing just cutting, or is it adding? And why would you do those things? And I've printed out two versions at the beginning of a play of mine called Snowflake. We're going to compare and contrast. And I've also managed to take some photos of of my notebooks of projects. I think it's quite interesting at this stage to see how ideas form on the page, as both Marilyn Monroe and Alistair Campbell say: learning how to think in ink
0: coming up at the old fire station summer months are always a bit quieter for us so i'm going to go over what we've got this week on monday the 26th of june we've got ai and theater which is a new symposium from torch the oxford center for the humanities which is we'll have to go along and see if they agree with our podcast sentiments yep. from episode two And on Saturday, the 1st of July, we have part of our Pride offering 52 monologues for young transsexuals, which is a new play by a new theatre company. So our news topic this week, Lynn Gardner in the stage wrote an article called, Is Self-Censorship Stifling the Important Conversations? And she quotes a director who says, we should be able to say anything on our stages. Officially, nobody is shutting us down, but a combination of self and peer censorship are doing that job. Within the artistic community, I find it really, really scary the speed with which a mob can be incited to attack another artist. He adds, If we don't dare ourselves to say and think everything, then we're never going to be fully armed to protect our freedom. And Lingardner says, The big question is how can artists get out of this cycle? And how can organisations better support them to be more emboldened and to make work that can genuinely be part of ongoing national and international debates about who we are and how we want to live? So I thought, Mike, that I would put those questions to you.
1: Yeah, well, they're really good questions. And actually, it's really exciting, and bracing. I mean, artists of all types have been discussing this for years now. It's a form of self-censorship that no one has really sort of talked about it in these pieces. The brilliant Matthew Dunster, and he is brilliant. He's got such a brain on him and also a heart, which is why I think he's exactly the person who can just come out and say this in an interview. And it'd be very clear that it's coming out of concern for wanting to do all the best possible art you can do. It's not coming out of any instinct of like, oh, you can't say anything these days. It's not that. I think in my experience of theatre, very few people in theatre that I've met, if they're artists, are trying to do something offensive. Even if they are completely off-beam, they are trying to reach for something truthful. The arts have often embraced people on the edges of society and we welcome different viewpoints and we can tolerate and enjoy difference and difference in terms of our bodies and our sexualities and identities, but I think also differences in our opinions. And that really should be one of the main reasons we go to theatre is to be challenged. And I think it's important to draw a distinction between the idea that, of course, we want to disagree. We've always disagreed, and that's absolutely, we should disagree. You know, Brecht talked about two different theatre posters. He was talking about people, about theatre posters, whether it's good or not, as in whether it, it's good-looking or not. And he said they really should be talking about whether it's good, morally good, socially, ethically good. I remember having long conversations about wanting to talk more about that, not just is the acting nice and is the writing beautiful, but actually does it do a moral good in the world? And we are talking about that, and that's brilliant, and I love that. I think for me, it's about the tone of the discussion, the humanity that sits underneath it, and giving people the benefit of the doubt that they are at least in an act of exploration and trying to find new territory, trying to push on the walls of experience. And inevitably, in the writing of that, artists make mistakes. That is the nature of art. No artist can be perfect, and no artist has ever been perfect, either in their life or in their work. For me, what we need to demand is that they're aiming after truth, that their intention is good about the world, that they're trying to do the right thing, and crucially that they hold our attention for the length of the piece, you know, that they're not boring. And I think if people do that and we can see that that's what they're trying to do, then the discourse around their work and them can at least be agreeable and polite and talk about the work rather than the person. It feels like with new work, with writing, what we want people to do, I think as artists, is to run towards those controversial subjects in all areas and understand that part of their job is to explore them and interrogate them and inhabit them, knowing that as long as they're doing it, trying to pursue truth, that no one's going to try and condemn them or pull down their career. Because I think that's what sits underneath the self-censorship, is a fear that I think I want to write this thing, but I'm worried that if I get it wrong or I make a mistake or it's misinterpreted or it's said the wrong way that I may never write a play again. And if that's your fear, of course you're not going to be as brave as you might be in any direction that your work wants to go. So I think there's that side of it in terms of how we all discuss the work and respect each other in the theatre industry. I think the other side of it, which I think Lynn touched on in the article, is about the importance of institutions. In order for writers and artists to feel safe making work and to really give them room to explore, any direction, the institutions that are going stage their work, developing it with them, need to be really robust and they need to have their back. So something does go wrong, but the institution stands behind them and goes, we believe in this work, we believe in you, we believe in what you're trying to do, and we're willing to come out publicly and defend you, or indeed take the flak from you if it goes wrong in some form. The institutions need to have that responsibility and need to be strong in themselves. And this all comes under the context of theatre has been whacked around the head with funding, with with Brexit actually, and with COVID again and again the last five years. In terms of that respect, I'm not sort of beating up on anybody particularly for doing this. I really understand if institutions are not in their finest fetal at the moment. But ideally, I think there's a link between how strong those institutions, theatres, art centres, companies are, and how much they are able to give cover To artists to explore difficult, controversial subjects that is actually what audiences want to see on stage. Do you agree? I do. Have you encountered artists self censoring in your work, writers or performers or comics?
0: Yes, in kind of different ways. So the first example that jumps to mind is a comedian. He had a show that he cancelled on the night after an act of terrorism a few years ago and he didn't do his show the following day because he's a British Asian comedian and he has a whole thing in his show about terrorism and and the attitudes towards British Asian men and he decided, actually, I don't think I can do this show tonight because I don't think anyone's going to laugh. This isn't the right time. And I thought that was a really mature and thoughtful and interesting decision to make. Yeah. The other thing, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, I've written a play on so-and-so, but no one's ever going to want it now. Or like, oh, you couldn't make that nowadays. Like Angela Weber today saying, oh, I couldn't make Evita now. And it's like, yeah, you probably couldn't. And is that a bad thing? I feel like we've learned a lot of empathy since the 80s, right? When Miss Saigon originally previewed, it had many, many white people in yellow face playing Vietnamese people. People were really angry about it. There's a really good article about when Miss Saigon moved to Broadway. I'll find it and I'll link it in the show notes. And basically about how the uproar within the acting community in New York, because Jonathan Price came over to reprise his role as the engineer, and they had to change the rules of American acting equity to allow him to do it. And they did that while kind of not supporting all of the actors of Asian heritage who are going, no, this isn't okay. Why are you letting this happen? You have the chance to stop this from happening in the Broadway transfer and you're not stopping it from happening. You would never try that now because that's a reprehensible thing to do. There's a really good reason why we wouldn't try that now.
1: It's interesting that we're talking about self-censorship in the same week that we're talking about editing in the course because actually they are two different things or two different sides of the same coin maybe The most free you can be as an artist is before anyone sees it. So then you can really explore all the stuff that's in your unconscious, that, you know, in your dreams you're not going to tell anyone about, or in your desires and all the stuff that's in your soul that you keep hidden. There is definitely a very healthy process of going, either it's not good for the work or I don't believe in that in the world or that isn't what I think the piece is. And I don't think that's self-censorship. I think that's just your craft and crafting a piece of work. And then I think there's a whole process that should happen from the moment you start writing and showing it to people, all about being really conscious about what is the impact of this on the audience and the multiple things that you have to think about in terms of representation, inclusion, metaphor, tropes. The number of these has increased as I've been working and I don't see any drawback with that at all. I find it just being more aware of the impact that your work has and what writer wouldn't want to be more aware of that and also what person writing in theatre wouldn't want it to be more inclusive and reach more areas of audience and not casually offend, which is the same as saying we don't want you in, in our audience if you're not aware of all those ideas and tropes and lazinesses. But I think I would want it to be more to go further and to open theatre up to communities and areas and absolutely in the stories we choose to tell and the way we choose to tell them. I'm all in favour of being increasingly progressive in our work and giving access and being very aware of not wanting to exclude audiences or offend people. I think that's separate from the instinct of when you're in control of what you want to do. You know that this is a truth or you feel like it's a truth you think it's important to say, you're not being accidental in terms of tropes or language or you're not trying to exclude anyone, but you feel this is an important thing that a play should be about, and yet you don't want to submit it in your play because you're scared of what the industry might say, what your peers might say, what press might say, what the critics might say, and particularly you're scared that that might mean you don't get to write another play because the danger of that is that you end up with work. You know, I think there's a relationship between the truth and political progress. I think it's very hard to have political progress if you don't establish the truth. And I don't think we should be scared of the truth, whatever our politics. I think the more we can get the truth out there, the more we can discuss it. And hopefully those arguments can win and we can progress society. What I'm much more scared of is that art stops finding those new truths or articulating the instinct that we all have that no one's articulated yet, that we don't have those moments because the artist is fearful of their income. And so I think we can absolutely, if we're careful, take apart those two things and see that right self-censoring can be happening in a culture which also with progressive people. And I think the two things are we should try and cultivate a discourse which recognizes that people are human beings and isn't rude and nasty, but is robust, but respectful and agreeable as much as we can be. And the institutions are strong and robust enough to protect the artists if they believe that they're really exploring something important and controversial, because the danger otherwise is that we will get work which the audience definitely is going to agree with, that we're all going to either be entertained or coming to agree. And actually, entertainment will keep the money coming in, but it won't keep the soul. And agreeing, coming to agree, is not a strong enough principle, ultimately, for big numbers of people to come to theatre a play that everyone agrees with is not going to hit the news pages of the paper rather than just the culture pages. And that's really what we want is the art and theatre to be part of a national discourse. And it can be if it's reaching for new truths and new things that no one's talked about.
0: What are we covering in the course this week?
1: So as we talked about, we're looking at editing. I always think of editing as being as much part of the creative writing process as when you first sit down and do your first draft. It's absolutely, I think about it, like that idea that the sculpture is in the block of stone. You just need to cut away the bits that aren't the sculpture. And so my first draft is like a rough shape of the sculpture. And then the editing process is getting into the detail, sculpting the hands, sculpting the tiny details and the textures. And that is absolutely as creative a process. And it can be anything editing, from cutting words out in a sentence to going, this entire scene is wrong and I need to write a completely different scene. Or indeed, as Penny Skinner talked about with us uh, a couple of weeks ago, her editing process can mean throwing away the entire play and restarting the play again. And so I'm going to give the writers a sort of list of provocations or guiding principles to editing to begin with, which when I was thinking about what editing is, It's sort of about being as in charge of what happens over the flow of time on stage as possible. So every moment that you're crafting lasts exactly the right amount of time. So that might mean that some bits you need to make shorter, and it might mean that some bits you need to extend and make longer. It might mean that the language is right in certain places, but it's about the attention of the audience over time. I find it very hard to be too aware of that when I'm in the flow of writing. You just want to follow the characters, really, and what they say when you're doing your first draft. You don't want to be thinking too much about the audience's experience over the evening. When it comes to editing, I think that's a lot of what you're thinking about. So things to police might be repetition. Have you said this before? Has the character conveyed this information, or have they said this thing before? But also, have you had this dramatic beat before? So we talked in the drama episode stroke week about The nature of drama and that it's about tactics and somebody using certain tactics to get what they want. Well, one thing to look out for is have you got a repetition of that? Have you got a character or a different character, but doing the same types of tactics to get a similar kind of outcome? If you have, then the audience are going to feel that repetition as much as they would feel a repeated line or a phrase. So you want not just the progress of the words to change over the course of the play, but also you want the types of dramatic action to alter and grow or change across the play otherwise it's like watching a football match where both sides are doing the same tactics all the way through no matter how many goals are scored it's kind of boring i'm mainly getting these from the radio for just a minute school of playwriting deviation so again is it relevant for the story you're telling now you might say sometimes you want some deviation you want something to go completely to somewhere else which is totally fine as long as that's a choice So in the editing process, you might take something that you did instinctively, So someone suddenly starts talking about M&Ms in the middle of some massive scene with their father, and you kind of go, why? Now, it might be that you go, that's absolutely right, there's a psychological reason they want to avoid talking about this subject, but it might also equally mean that you go, I wrote that because I broke for a cup of tea and I'd forgotten where the scene was, or I wrote that because it was a really good speech that I'd written somewhere else and I thought it could go in there, but actually it's not relevant. So Any deviation needs to be sort of deliberate. Hesitation, I thought I should finish the three just-a-minute rules of playwriting, which I take to mean there is a thing that some playwrights do. This can go wrong two ways. So you can forego things in a play. So you can forego information. You can forego a confrontation, by which I mean you can say there's drama that's going to happen. There's going to be like the father's going to confront the son, but they're not going to do it yet. They're going to do it. And we know it's coming. And that can be a very useful tactic. But it can go on too long and it can become frustrating. It's a bit like a scene if someone comes in and goes, have you got it? Well, when did you? Why why didn't you got it? Well, I left it in the house. And you don't say what it is. That can be interesting for a certain period of time. And then it just becomes really annoying. So again, it's about knowing when you land information and when you land the confrontations at the right moment. And the choice of when you do that is part of your artistry, but that's what you do. But you have to sense and be in control of it, I think. Is the play too restricted? Is it too boiled down? Tony Kushner talks about some plays are like lasagnas. He says his plays are like lasagnas with everything overflowing and only just holding together in the shape of a lasagna. And he says other plays are like matzo breads, like the the Jewish flatbreads where it's boiled down, it only just constitutes food. And he says like a Samuel Beckett play is that. Um, And I I love that. And of course, we, we have to mention Tony Kushner every week, and we've done that, which is good. So is it too overflowing? Is it too boiled down? There really isn't any rule about that. But again, be in control of it. Know what your play is. Know what you're aiming at, and how does that relate to the content of the play? Is all the information that you want to be in the play in the play? And conversely, have you restated the information too much? Is it too overexplained, either emotionally, psychologically, or just geographically, or... All the exposition, which is about the information you're communicating to the audience, have you done it too much or have you not done it enough? You can check that. Is it the right scene? Often I find that it's very rare that I will read a scene and go, the dialogue is simply not good enough. That's not because the dialogue is not good enough and because I've suddenly forgotten how to write. It'll be because I've picked the wrong scene, so the characters haven't got the right intentions or the right motivations. And so sometimes, actually, when you find that you're going through your play and it's covered in biro marks and you go, this is all wrong actually it gets to the point where you go, I think there's something underneath this which is wrong, like the intentions of the characters. It's not the right scene. I've got something wrong in its essence. And so all of these things you can be policing as you print out your play, or well, certainly what I do is print out the play and then go through it with a biro and mark all these things. And I'm all thinking about, are these things right? Where am I bumping? And what you'll find is that there'll be probably, is there'll be pages where there won't be many biro marks. And there'll be other pages which is covered in biro. And that's a pretty good clue as to where the problems lie and perhaps what's causing the certain problems that you've got. This list is not exhaustive and we can keep on adding to it. But hopefully that's a sort of start to go how to effectively and dispassionately read and edit your play. Because the other danger of editing, it's worth saying, is that you sink into an overly critical mindset of my play is terrible. I think that reading through the first draft of every single play I've ever written, every single episode of TV, I've gone, it's awful, and I've said to my nearest and dearest, it's it doesn't work. I've got it all wrong, and then they say, you always say this, keep editing it, and then I do keep editing it, and it will then hopefully the dream of the thing that you created will reemerge, but it, it it's just not there yet. It's like looking at a block of marble and going, well, that's a terrible statue of a human being. Before anyone's actually got in and removed all the bits that aren't the statue. So I find the more dispassionate and objective I can be in the editing process, the better. Almost like I'm editing it like it's not my work. I've just got to make it the best it can possibly be.
0: So what exercises are we going to be doing?
1: As well as those questions that you can ask your work, we're going to get into pairs. Both people are going to write scenes and then they're going to swap them and edit their scenes. And they're going to do this dispassionately. There's no right or wrong about this. It's not critical. Really, the exercise is more about the editing rather than what did the original person get wrong. And this came from when I was writing a play and a friend of mine who's a playwright. She read the very, very early version of it. And I think she'd had a few too many glasses of wine, as had I. And she just started going through with the virus saying, well, you don't need that word, you don't need that word. And it was so annoying. And then I read it back. And it was much better. And just watching her put a biro through certain words, I think moved me forward as a writer about 10 15%, 20%. It really was a big jump is to go, I'm overwriting every single sentence. And so just, I think sometimes seeing somebody else's editing of your work is useful, but also being dispassionate about work that you haven't written is going to be a useful way of practicing editing as well.
0: We have a question from listener Nancy, which is actually very on theme for this podcast. Nancy asks, at what stage in the process do you get feedback on ideas or writing and who from? Is it always the same person or people? Do you accept their critique or do you trust your own judgment?
1: That is a very on theme question. And actually, I was thinking about that as we were discussing stuff this week. I think it's probably different for everybody I think increasingly mostly now my wife who's a theatre director reads is the first reader of everything I think slightly I'm writing it to impress her because I know she's going to read it it's not a bad instinct to want her to find the funny bits funny and think I'm amazing you know I think often writers you need a base instinct to to motivate you and that's that's mine is to want to be loved by my wife but I think crucially she's She's a very good reader. She'll tell me the truth as well, which is probably one of the most useful things. I have another friend who's a playwright. She came out of my first play. It was on downstairs at the Royal Court. It was my first play was on downstairs at the Royal Court and I was 26. I mean, it's like, you don't get that. And it was amazing. And she came out. I said, what do you think? And she went, well, it was all right. I didn't really understand. And she launched into this attack on it. Totally legitimate, totally what she felt. And she's one of my best friends. And... But she's very honest, and it's, it's really, really useful. So I think you're looking for that inner circle of people that can be both very honest, love you, and have your best interests at heart. But also, on the other side of that, know what's great about what you do. It's very easy to be critical. It's actually quite hard to go, where are the peaks in this? Where are the moments that are going to make stage magic? Because sometimes they can be a bit more buried, You know the bits that aren't working so well. You want someone who can be accurately not just a critic, but a cheerleader. Because anyone can be a critic. I think I would hold off as long as possible giving it to someone who is, in any notion, a gatekeeper. Because all gatekeepers, by virtue of the fact that they stand by a gate, they have an agenda which isn't just about how good your play is or what's right for you. They also are thinking, what's our view on dramaturgy in this building? Or what do I like in a play? Or Could we program this? And those are completely different questions to, is this a good play? And so you want to try and get your play to a place where it's as good as it can possibly be. And you are as happy as you could possibly be. You've printed it out a million times and you've gone through with your biro and you cannot find a thing wrong with it. You need to get to that point before you show it to anyone who might either put it on or tell you that they're not going to put it on. Because that's when it gets into potentially heartbreaking territory. And you need to be protected against that. And one way to protect against it, to really know your play, know what it does and what it doesn't do. And if you're calling for a meeting, you really are all across it in terms of its qualities. And if someone gives you notes and suggestions, you know the difference between one that you go, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought that's going to make it brilliant, which you will get lots of. And people can be really smart on plays and give really great notes. And my plays have absolutely been made a million times better through really smart noting. But you'll also get a lot of notes which are completely wrong. And being able to tell the difference between those is a question of a bit of experience, but also particularly experience of this particular play and knowing it better than anybody else and knowing what you're after with it, what you feel it should do. And also if you've had enough readers before you give it to the gatekeepers, you also will have some sense of what is communicating and what isn't, what's clear and what isn't. So again, you have as much as possible both a subjective view of it because you wrote it, but also an objective view of how it's read by a wider group of people.
0: Please do send in your questions to Mike, info at oldfirestation.org.uk. We do read everything. And I just wanted to finish with a really nice email that we had from a listener called Kate, who was responding to our discussion about funding in the arts and Kate says we have to keep the funding of theatre work connected to the funding of audience engagement and outreach as without an audience's participation we are nothing and to do that we must consider and respect our audiences as creative individuals because it is our creativity as individuals and communities which keeps us human this has to be about more than marketing it is about making the audience part of the story making them participants in it change makers in their own lives and the world beyond the theatre experience we're making for them In my view, outreach and education departments should be at the very heart of organisations, working hand-in-hand with marketing departments, with fundraising departments, to draw together that big, beautiful audience that live theatre thrives off.
1: Very good. I agree. agree with Kate.
0: Thanks, Kate. That's all this week. Great. Bye. Bye. How to Write a Play is hosted by Mike Bartlett and Alex Polk. Editing and music is by Hannah Gallardo Parsons and it's produced by the Old Fire Station, Oxford. Please support us by giving five-star ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts to help us get seen by more theatre makers. This show receives no exterior funding. If you'd like to support the work of the Old Fire Station, please donate at oldfirestation.org.uk.